0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, I do give you thanks for all the blessings and mercies of this day. I thank you for all those people who have been a joy to us, who have been supportive of us, who have loved and cared for us. Thank you also, Lord God, for all those people who have been challenges to us, who have annoyed us, uh, who have angered us. I remember so clearly, Lord God, uh, the many people who have told me that these are the people who will get us into heaven. So I pray, Heavenly Father, that you will keep our eyes on heaven this evening. Let the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, Before I begin tonight, uh, I'm uh, I'm, I'm so glad uh, to to have heard uh, mention of Holy Scripture. Uh, Catholics, uh, as I indicated last week, need to be more serious about that. Let me uh, make a suggestion uh, that uh... Is, sur- is sure to start some conversations uh... in your workplace one of the things that uh, i always recommend people do and i do myself uh, i keep a-, a copy of the bible on my desk uh... at school That's a public school uh... and uh... anytime someone comes to my desk uh... is uh, almost always starts a conversation they look at that and they say "Oh," and. Uh, <laughs> Almost always it leads to a question, and almost always the question leads to a conversation. Uh, One of the the things we're going to uh, lift up tonight uh, is the etymological connection uh, between the word conversion and uh, the word conversation. Uh, The two words are related, Uh, but more about that in a few minutes. Uh, As you uh, uh, know, or uh, if you're here for the first time and seeing me for the first time, you may not know this, I am a public school teacher. Uh, I am uh, a teacher of social studies and Latin at Centerville High School in Clifton. And you you may have heard of some of the changes that have been introduced in the Fairfax County school system uh, this fall. Uh, And some of the uh, changes that have gotten the most attention have to do with grading. Uh, this year, for, uh, for example, uh, I am no longer able to give students a zero. No, uh, if, uh, if all a student does is commit respiration uh, in my class, they don't even have to do it in my class. They can skip class and commit their respiration elsewhere. The lowest grade I can give them is 50%. percent hmm Uh, If a student fails to do an assignment, fails to turn in an assignment, fails to take a test, or gets every answer wrong, uh, the lowest grade we can give is 50%. (laughs) Uh, In my school, we are obliged uh, to offer students an opportunity to retake every major assessment on which they receive a grade of lower than 80%. And we are obliged to allow students to turn work in late. Now, uh, if you want to uh, talk uh, afterward perhaps about uh, what some of the reasons for these changes uh, are, I would be happy to uh, talk with you about that, but that's not where I was going with this. Now, my perception uh, in talking with my colleagues is the teachers are not happy about this. This is not something the teachers came up with. This is something the teachers uh, have had forced upon us. and I myself uh, consider these changes to be catastrophically wrong-headed. They aren't changes that have anything to do with students learning more uh, and arguably uh, will result in students learning less. But that isn't even the biggest problem. As I see it, the biggest problem is that these changes will make things worse For low-income students. Uh, As I see it, these changes will make things worse uh, for low-income students. I teach uh, mostly this year AP uh, History of the United States. I think uh, these changes in the grading system uh, are not going to have much of an effect on those kids because they already know how to succeed in school. And that's why they they signed up uh, for an extremely challenging class, AP, History of the United States. Uh, Under this grading regime or the previous one, they were going to do well anyway. Those aren't the ones I'm worried about. It's the kids in my other classes that I'm worried about. The ones who don't speak English at home. Uh, the ones who receive uh, free or reduced lunch. When I started working at Centerville High School, the percentage of children on free and reduced lunch was 7%. Uh, Fifteen years later, it's uh, over 30%. Uh, it's quadrupled. Uh, so demographics in our county are changing. I worry about the, the, the students uh, whose parents have limited or no English. Uh, The ones whose parents work two and three jobs just to get by. Uh, The ones whose parents therefore lack the time, lack the inclination, or lack the experience to be very interested in what goes on at school. I think these rules changes are going to hurt those kids. I think those changes are going to give those students a false sense of what they know. Uh, making them think they are more prepared for college and for work than what they are. I fear, it's only the second week of school so I don't have any data on this yet, but I fear uh, that the rules changes will make them less serious about school and therefore less able to succeed rather than more so. I think these changes, I fear that these changes will make the gap between the middle class or better kids and the children of the poor greater. We talk long and loud about the achievement gap in our schools and usually we're referring to issues of race. We should be referring to issues of class, uh, socioeconomic class. The reason I bring this up is because the canary in the mine for every act of public policy uh, in my judgment is how it works for the poor. If an act of public policy or an act of educational policy is going to make life tougher for the poor it's the wrong thing to do. I think that the same thing also applies to religion. If changes in the way that people think about meaning if changes in the way that people think about spirituality, if changes in the way that people think about religiosity, uh, charity, uh, church attendance, if those kinds of changes make life tougher for the poor, there's a very good reason to think that those ideas are false. Or if not false, then at least very badly flawed. Now last week, Uh, we began considering uh, the phenomenon of unchurched spirituality in the United States. Uh, People who seek religious meaning and insight uh, outside of the ideas and institutions of organized religion. and We surveyed uh, briefly the history of unchurched uh, spirituality in America and identified uh, these uh, general characteristics of unchurched uh, spirituality. First, it emerges from a dissatisfaction with conventional religion. It emerges from a dissatisfaction with conventional religion. Two, uh, it emerges among among a minority of people, never more than 10% of the population, usually much smaller. And the overwhelming majority of those people are white, well-educated, and well-off. Third, it typically does not emerge as a result of negative interactions with organized religion. Sometimes it does. People have had uh, bad experiences, uh, bad priests, bad parishioners, bad experiences, uh, the clergy sex abuse scandal. Sometimes those things are the issue, but most of the time they're not. Uh, Fourth, unchurched spirituality is focused on individual experience. It's weak on forming relationships and community and as a consequence these movements have a very difficult time lasting more than a generation or so. Fifth, uh, it's reluctant to develop mediators or teachers uh, and appeals rather to the view uh, that uh, people can just kind of do this on your own. There's a very strong do-it-yourself element to unchurched spirituality. And finally, Uh, we discussed how it is ill-equipped to deal with moral crises, particularly moral crises like war. We found that uh, during the Civil War and during the World Wars, uh, unchurched spirituality in America went into eclipse and didn't come back uh, until those crises were concluded. Now, it's generally assumed... It's generally assumed that uh, this view of the world, the the view of the world of unchurched spirituality is benign. Nobody gets hurt. It might be a little bit superficial, might be a little bit narcissistic, but not to the point where it really hurts anyone. Uh, I want to suggest to you tonight that it isn't benign uh, and that there are victims. And that the victims, uh, increasingly, are not the white, well-educated, and well-off, but the poor. The victims are not the people who go to the yoga store at Fair Oaks Mall uh, and stretch out to ease their aching backs. Those aren't the victims. Uh, I want to suggest to you tonight that the victims are the poor. Now, I'm well aware that that's pretty strong stuff. Uh, Let me explain what I mean. Uh, We're all pretty well aware, uh, I should think, uh, by now, that there is a growing economic gap between the commanding heights of the uh, American society and the American economy and those in the working class and the underclass. The percentage of people, uh, the population, with direct power over organizations, uh, corporations, universities, government, that's very small. Very small, much less than the 1% at the very top. It's kind of like the 1% of the 1% who have that kind of direct control uh, over large entities in the economy and in the society. However, there is an upper class culture that encompasses more than those people who exercise power directly. Well, who's in that upper class culture? it's a lot of people in this room it includes lawyers college professors managers directors and sizable corporations newspaper editors editorialists and reporters teachers uh, and other professionals in affluent suburbs like ours these people and that's a lot of maybe everybody in this room is part of an elite culture in the United States Now these people, which as I say includes a a lot of people here, uh, exercise significant influence even if their incomes are considerably less than those of the 1%. You don't have to be making a gazillion dollars a year to have this kind of an influence. Uh, I've read two very interesting books lately uh, that I commend to you uh, that describe in great detail some of the dimensions of this issue. Uh, one is by Charles Murray. It was published in 2010. It's called Coming Apart. Uh, Charles Murray is famous for writing a book uh, several years ago called The Bell Curve. Uh, what you need to know about Charles Murray is that he's a libertarian-leaning conservative. Uh, another book is by Robert Putnam, a sociologist from Harvard. Uh, and he's written a book called Our Kids, The American Dream in Crisis. And Robert Putnam is a much more uh, traditional liberal. Charles Murray and Robert Putnam have both uh, uh, plowed through the, uh, the data uh, on these uh, issues that I'm talking about. And very interestingly, despite their uh, different ideological positions, they've come to very much the same conclusion. One of the things they've concluded is this, that marriage is one of the major fault lines dividing the upper-class culture from the rest. In 1960, for instance, there was a uh, what might be called a bourgeois consensus uh, about sex and marriage, about getting married and staying married, about having kids and raising kids. Uh, And that consensus was this. Sex and marriage went together. You got married, you stayed married. You had kids, you raised kids, who did the same thing that you did. The sexual revolution of the 60's and 70's changed all of that. In the almost 60 years since then, since the start of the sexual revolution, uh, a bohemian consensus has taken over among the country's elites and it reflects a shift from uh, stability to experimentation. Uh, The new consensus, the Bohemian Consensus, says that consenting adults may have sex as often and with whomever they wish. Marriage and children are optional. Elites advise their children, you must be tolerant. You must be non-judgmental about people's choices. You don't speak of illegitimacy, you speak of non-traditional families. You speak of alternative choices, not broken homes. Now, one of the most interesting and paradoxical features of all of this is that the elites, while they talk the talk of the 60s, they walk the walk of the 50s. The overwhelming majority of elites are married to the person they married first. Eighty-five percent. Eighty-five percent married just one time and still married. Non-traditional families among the elites are vanishingly rare. Hollywood aside. Name your pathology. Unemployment, underemployment, drug, uh, alcohol abuse, negative interactions with the law, Failure to complete school, all those things vanishingly rare among the elites. They talk the talk of the 60s, but they walk the walk of the 50s. Now, the bottom half of the economy. Among the bottom half of the economy, the bohemian consensus that is applauded but not adopted by the elites is the most obvious characteristic. And the results of this bohemian consensus uh, in the working class and the underclass have been catastrophic. Fewer than 50% are married. More than 35% of those who have been married are divorced. Among some demographic groups uh, in the uh, working class and the underclass, the number of children being raised by single parents is an astonishing 70%. Uh, Less than a third of children uh, in the working class and the underclass live with both biological parents. uh, Unemployment and underemployment are their daily bread. Uh, The rate of those on permanent disability is increasing. Rates of crime and imprisonment are increasing. Drug and alcohol abuse are common. Uh, R. R. Reno, in his new book, uh, Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society, says, There's only one word to describe this trend. And that word is collapse. The moral and spiritual integrity of the working class and the underclass is disintegrating. Now people like us, sorry, I apologize for the grammatical barbarism. People like we are, work hard not to notice this. People in the top 20% of earners in the United States work hard not to notice this. Elites generally do not want to face their responsibility for the destruction of the moral and spiritual integrity of the working class and the underclass. And the weapon of mass destruction amongst the working and the underclass has been what uh, Reno calls non-judgmentalism. Non-judgmentalism. The view that not uh, not necessarily that there are no objective morals and values and duties, but that these values and duties are more political than they are moral. The purpose of non-judgmentalism, Reno says, is to soften uh, moral judgments that affect us personally, uh, allowing us to decide what's right for us. It's like market deregulation. Uh, it is designed to open up uh, formerly regulated spheres of life. Uh, sex is the most obvious of these, but not the only one changes the way people talk. Uh, People uh, talk about things not being uh, immoral, uh, but instead they talk about things being unhealthy uh, or unproductive uh, or unhelpful. Now for people like us, non-judgmentalism is not much of a problem. unless I very badly miss my guess for the people in this room non-judgmentalism is not a problem in fact uh, it works pretty well for the white well-educated and well-off because they because we have enough social and economic capital to protect themselves ourselves from the consequences of bad choices and Once again, paradoxically, people like us still follow a bourgeois code when it comes to working hard, academic success, family choices, drug choices, etc. Elites are like my AP U.S. history students. They already know how to succeed. And they use their freedom more or less wisely, which means they regulate it according to an older moral code and they have enough language skill to be able to do this uh, without appearing to be conforming to bourgeois expectations. But the working class and the underclass, they disintegrate. Deprived of normative rules, marriages decline, illegitimacy increases, education spirals downward, male-female relations go sour. I think the clearest example of this class war on the week, and yeah, I, I really do think this is a class war on the week, it's very clearly exemplified in the campaign for gay marriage. Elites uh, across the country have tended to embrace this uh, as an expression of freedom, but it has almost no effect on elite life, almost none. The number of gay people in the United States is not increasing. It's still between one and three percent, the same as it's always been. Elites have enough social and economic resources to absorb all this without a whole lot of trouble. But in the neighborhoods of the working class, in the neighborhoods of the underclass, the campaign for gay marriage makes marriage itself look like one more thing that is plastic, and fluid, and can be changed simply if we change our minds. In other words, the campaign for gay marriage is a moral luxury uh, for the rich that's being paid for by the poor. Vulnerable people, socially disoriented people uh, especially, need clear rules that direct them to the kind of decisions that enable them to live with dignity. And non-judgmentalism is simply not stepping up to this. Non-judgmentalism treats moral lines with suspicion or hostility. It amounts to, frankly, uh, a war on the weak. Those are the students that I worry about. Those are the people uh, that I worry about. Well, what does that have to do with unchurched spirituality? The purpose of any spirituality is to embody in habits of mind, body, and spirit the meaning of life. That's the purpose of spirituality, to embody in habits of mind, body, and spirit the meaning of life. If, however, meaning itself is endlessly fluid and plastic, as unchurched spirituality in America has always said that it is, it can be whatever you decide it to be. If we are free to define spirituality and meaning in any way that suits us, if we are encouraged to deregulate the spiritual world the same way if we have deregulated the moral world, then we don't get a world where there's more meaning. We get a, wor- a world where there is less If a greater and greater range of ideas can be considered meaningful and spiritual, then the actual scope of meaning and spirituality shrinks. Just one more thing that leads to collapse and dysfunctional people. One more luxury of the rich that's being paid for by the poor. There are three uh, forms of unchurched spirituality that are particularly popular in our time, uh, yoga, zen, and transcendental meditation. Uh, all three of them have roots in the distant past, and I wanted to uh, share with you a little bit about where they came from. Yoga and transcendental meditation reach back to the time of the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, namely, they reach back to about 400 A.D. And both of them, uh, yoga and transcendental meditation, draw on changes in Hinduism from that time. And uh, in that time, uh, Hinduism was going through changes that spoke of three ways of salvation. Uh, There was first the way of works, uh, which was called uh, in Hinduism, uh, Karma Marga, which focuses on ritual, especially domestic ritual and the merit that accrues to those people who carry out rituals faithful and carefully. Then there's the way of knowledge. Uh, Janana Marga or Janana Yoga uh, which focuses on the knowledge that can banish ignorance uh, and uh, focus people on how knowledge is achieved. And then finally there's the way of devotion uh, called Bhakti Marga or Bhakti Yoga which focuses on ardent devotion to a particular deity uh, to break uh, the cycle of samsara. Now, yoga uh, began as part of this way of knowledge, focusing on knowledge that can banish ignorance of how uh, this kind of saving knowledge is achieved. Yoga began as a system of mental discipline. Uh, that that had physical characteristics and psychological characteristics to assist the mind in concentration. Uh, We're all familiar with the kinds of positions uh, that uh, yoga places people in. Uh, And today, those positions are considered uh, the sorts of things that uh, stretch you out and uh, make aching joints feel better. But uh, in yoga as a religion, uh, these positions are designed to help you uh, discipline your mind so that conscious movements can be controlled and at times uh, suspended to allow for the emergence of spiritual ecstasy. Some of this isn't going to uh, come as a great shock to Catholics. We already know the particular postures uh, are good, for particular kinds of prayer. For instance, one of the ways of prayer uh, that, uh, that Catholics use is to, is to pray with our heads down and hands up. Very old. This goes back to ancient Judaism. Uh, there are also changes in posture we use when we pray. Uh, there's not a Catholic in the room that's going to be surprised sometimes we kneel. You know, We already know that changes in posture can be something that helps focus us Uh, in our spiritual discipline. Yoga does a version of the same thing. But uh, the important thing to remember, it was a form of mental discipline uh, designed to focus people on particular kinds of knowledge uh, that can banish ignorance and ultimately help them overcome uh, the dreadful cycle of samsara. Now Zen uh, appeared about six centuries later. Uh, Zen emerged in the 10th century, and similar to yoga, it focused on control of the mind to achieve uh, what is called in Buddhism uh, Shikantaza, or emptying uh, of the mind through mindfulness about breathing, uh, about the chains of thought that arise and then pass away. Uh, This emptying that creates an interior space that can be filled with peace and insight. Now, in their original forms, and in the way they are practiced today uh, uh, among serious Hindus and serious Buddhists, uh, both yoga and Zen take years to achieve uh, expertise in, and almost always under the direction of a spiritual master, uh, a sannyasin uh, or a Zen master. That's what they looked like in their original form. That's what they look like today when they are practiced as forms of religion. Uh, Needless to say, perhaps, both uh, yoga and Zen underwent significant alteration when they were transferred to an American context in the 19th century. In the late 19th century, in 1893, there was an event called the World Parliament of Religions, met in Chicago, Uh, And it was the first popular introduction uh, in the United States of Eastern religious ideas. Uh, People who attended the uh, Parliament of Religions in Chicago in 1893 uh, were enthralled by a Hindu mystic who went by the name of Swami Vivekananda, uh, who introduced Americans to the Hindu philosophy of Vedanta. Now, uh, Vedanta is uh, is a no-kidding... Uh, philosophy within uh, Hinduism. Uh, But what people walked away uh, from the uh, World Parliament of Religions with uh, was another view uh, that was promoted uh, in error by Swami Vivekananda. Uh, To uh, the best of anyone's knowledge he was the very first one uh, to articulate the popular, the very popular, and deeply mistaken view that the world's different religions are simply different paths up the same mountain. Raise your hand if you've ever heard anybody say, well, all religions teach basically the same thing. Yeah. Uh, That's how I start my world religions class every year. I ask the students, how many of you have heard somebody say, all religions teach basically the same thing? They all raise their hand. How many of you have heard it, I ask them, right here in this building from a teacher? All the hands go up. It's a deeply mistaken view. Uh, and would never be articulated by anybody who actually knows something about uh, world religious traditions. Uh, What I try to get through to my students is uh, the differences are real and the differences matter. Uh, This year I have several very serious Muslims uh, in my class, all girls. Uh, All girls, no no guys uh, who are serious Muslims in uh, in my class. Uh, But I have the largest number ever of people who uh, identify as not just Catholics, but serious Catholics. The first time in about 11 years that I've been teaching this course that that's happened. How about that? Yeah, and they don't know their Bible. (laughs) Uh, Um, One of the clubs that I'm a sponsor of is the Catholic Students Association. We had our first meeting yesterday. Um, I'm giving them all a Bible uh, at our next meeting. They want to have a Bible study every Wednesday after school. So, thank God. Anyway. So, uh, all these uh, different religions, says Swami Vivekananda, are simply different paths up the same mountain. Now, who were the people who were in uh, in attendance at the World Parliament of Religions in 1893? You probably know the profile already. White, well-educated, well-off. And to hear that All the uh, world's religions were simply different paths up the same mountain. That was precisely what they wanted to hear. Because it meant they didn't have to change a thing about who they were. Because it was just a different path up the same mountain. They didn't have to change a thing. Just what they wanted to hear. They could be more than just cafeteria Catholics, they could be cafeteria consumers of all religions. Uh, Picking idiosyncratically from the best insights of all the world's faiths and significantly not picking those features that required teachers, communities, and years of practice. One reviewer of the World Parliament of Religions in 1893 said this, The audience listened spellbound while he, Swami Vivekananda, delivered a lecture full of lofty idealism, of wisdom. Through it all ran India's most sacred teaching, the divinity of man, his innate and eternal perfection, that this perfection is not a growth nor a gradual attainment, but a present reality. That thou art. You are that now. We are not the helpless, limited beings which we think ourselves to be, but birthless, deathless, glorious children of immortal bliss. All that from going to one meeting. (laughs) Just what they wanted to hear. Several decades later, uh, the early years of the uh, 20th century, just before the Great Depression, uh, another uh, Hindu uh, philosopher named Swami uh, Paramahansa Yogananda Uh, on a lecture tour uh, and in a book that he wrote, a book called uh, The Autobiography of a Yogi, uh, introduced Americans uh, to more Hindu beliefs and uh, meditation practices. He called these the secret to cosmic consciousness, which would help Americans express the infinite potentials of cosmic energy. And since that time, since about the 1920s, uh, Americans typically have associated Eastern religions, particularly Hinduism, and Buddhism uh, with meditation, Uh, with a particular brand of mysticism that leads to uh, experiences of spiritual ecstasy uh, and the discovery of hidden psychic powers. Uh, Paramahansa Yogananda uh, founded the Self-Realization Fellowship, uh, a very interesting phrase. Self-realization, you don't need anything other than yourself the Self-Realization Fellowship, uh, and he assured people that they could experience, quote, the complete harmony and basic oneness of original Christianity as taught by Jesus Christ and original yoga as taught by Lord Krishna, and to show that these principles of truth are the common scientific foundation of all true religions, unquote. Uh, The Society the Self-Realization Fellowship would also, quote, demonstrate the superiority of mind over body, of soul over mind to promote spiritual understanding between East and West, and to advocate the exchange of their finest distinctive features, to harmonize science and religion through realizing that nature and its laws originated in the divine mind, to overcome evil by good, sorrow by joy, cruelty by kindness, and ignorance by wisdom." Dang! That's nice. Also just what people wanted to hear, just exactly what people uh, wanted to hear, particularly the superiority of mind over body, of soul over mind. They don't have to behave any differently because soul is uh, superior to mind and mind is superior to body. Not long after that, uh, Jiddu Krishnamurti, uh, who was trained by the famous uh, British socialist and president of the Theosophical Society, a woman named Annie Besant. Uh, that some of you may have heard of. Uh, He was groomed to be the long-awaited world teacher uh, who would later usher in a new age of religious awareness. Uh, He eventually broke with uh, Annie Besant and with uh, theosophy, but until his death in 1986, he was a very significant voice by which Americans uh, were called to embrace this salad bar approach to religion. Blended uh, Vedanta teachings on the divinity of the self, Uh, with occultism, with uh, Western views of self-reliance. It was just what the white, well-educated, and well-off people wanted to hear. In the second half of the 20th century, uh, Americans were introduced to the uh, Zen master D.T. Suzuki. Uh, He shared the view of theosophy that true spirituality consisted of an, quote, immediate mystical experience of reality, uh, that transcends the world of everyday experience. He said the goal of Zen was not to help people experience a different reality, but to make, uh, to make us awaken suddenly. Uh, the sudden awakening uh, in Zen is called Satori. To uh, have us wake, uh, awaken suddenly to the sacred uh, reality of the present moment. Uh, D.T. Suzuki had a very uh, significant impact on uh, the beat poets like Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, and also on the famous uh, and very well-known, well, famous and well-known are the same thing, uh, Catholic spiritual writer Thomas Merton. Uh, Beat writers uh, and Thomas Merton saw Zen as pure spirituality that was free from the boring, doctrine-laden writings and rituals uh, that are such a burden to Christianity. Uh, Alan Watts uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, a former Episcopalian priest, uh, was another who had a very powerful effect on the counterculture movement, had a vigorous appeal to university students who were white, well educated, and well off wrote a very influential essay called beat Zen square Zen and Zen uh, in which he talked about Zen as a deconditioning agent uh, to liberate the mind from conventional thought wanted people to embrace this enlarged frame of mind in which people could see that the sacred now the present moment uh, was just gorged with divinity Very self-consciously, however, he refused to start a movement uh, due to his suspicion of organizations and their inevitable stultifying bureaucracies. The most uh, successful Eastern philosophical approach in the United States has been transcendental meditation. Uh, Its founder, uh, who was made famous by the Beatles, uh, was, yes, I see some uh, heads nodding, you remember the Beatles, (coughs) the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Uh, Organized ways to teach a simplified form of yoga on college campuses, uh, corporate offices, and in malls around the country. Uh, the practice of Transcendental Meditation involved, uh, in uh, his view, uh, two 15 to 15-20 minute periods each day during which participants would uh, quietly relax and recite a one-syllable mantra and the purpose of the mantra was to help people let go of the outer world uh, and turn their attention inward uh, and this would help them connect with the quote pure creative intelligence that he said was everywhere Catholics don't need to be uh, 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 overly suspicious of this uh, because uh, Catholics are well known for not composing their own prayers you know Uh, I have a rosary in my pocket. I I bet many of you do too. How many of those prayers do we make up? (laughs) All right? And the purpose of those prayers is also to direct our attention, but we're not directing our attention inward, we're trying to direct our attention outward. A very significant difference uh, between Catholic spirituality uh, and unchurched spirituality. Uh, Americans uh, who have been influenced by Transcendental Medication medication, Meditation (laughs) Meditation meditation, uh, came to believe, uh, as many believe still, uh, that the Eastern outlook is fairly monolithic. Uh, Only very rarely have Americans been taught about the various different sects within these Eastern traditions. Uh, and uh, Zen and yoga and transcendental meditation are rarely taught in their historical or cultural context. Yoga today, uh, you may have read in the paper, uh, isn't, uh, well not only is it not being taught as religion, it's uh, being taught as a technique for personal wellness. Uh, So much so uh, that the government of India has started a program to take yoga back. Uh, They want it back because they think the West has wrecked it. (coughs) Government officials in India, uh, uh, the Prime Minister, Mr. Modi, uh, insist that yoga is uh, not about fitness and wellness, it's about religion. But scholars in India uh, and elsewhere are having a difficult uh, time uh, describing where the lines are. Is yoga, as it's practiced in India today, a spiritual discipline going back to the 4th century AD? Or is it a technique for physical wellness that only goes back about 100 years? Experts in India disagree. So, uh, Vajrayana Buddhism, Taoism, Zen, Vedanta, Sufism, certain forms of Christian mysticism, astrology, the writings of D.T. Suzuki uh, and Krishnamurti, uh, in an uh, eclectic blend, um, have appealed to many Americans, especially those who are white, well-educated, and well-off, to look for a new spiritual vision. And many of the people who have been looking for this attended college in the 60s and 70s. I'm looking around the room. You remember the 60s and 70s, yes? Many of these people have blamed Christianity for producing an excessively materialistic culture. There's some warrant to that criticism. In general, the message that a lot of Americans take away from Eastern religions is pretty much the same uh, as what Americans have always sought from unchurched spirituality. It's a pantheistic uh, understanding of God. God is everywhere. Every moment is gorged with divinity. A Continuity of the self with this ever-present and everywhere-present divine reality. The ability of all people, no matter what, to connect with this divinity no matter where they are, no matter who they are, no matter what they do. Experience and personal reflection are the only criteria for arriving at religious beliefs and the need to develop a spiritual outlook that builds on, rather than questions, the scientific understanding of the universe. Eastern religions urge people not to master nature, as uh, Genesis teaches, but to yield to nature, uh, believing that the natural world and the spiritual world uh, are safe and good. So, the canary in the mine. for all spiritualities as well as for all acts of public policy and educational policy is how they do with the poor. The crisis that is being experienced by the poor today is a profoundly moral one that is largely unaided by people connecting with the divine all around them and living more fully in the moment. Uh, The critique that we spoke of uh, last time Uh, that unchurched spirituality is rather narcissistic, it's focused on personal mystical experiences and largely unconcerned with moral transformation or community building uh, is very evident in the attachment that many Americans have to various brands of Eastern religious thought. The notion that religion is just one more of those realities of modern life that is plastic and fluid, and malleable, and formable uh, to whatever shape we will, has been a catastrophe for the poor people of the West. And a catastrophe that is largely invisible to people like us. And where it's not invisible, it's often uh, rationalized away by people who are white, well-educated, and well-off. We see on a daily basis what happens to uh, to the working class and the underclass when marriage is regarded this way. It's led to an epidemic of temporary relationships, an eclipse of two-parent families, an eruption of children who lack adequate parental leadership and so struggle in school and relationships, and an embargo on religious speech to help explain it all. Unchurched spirituality, the way it's being appropriated and practiced by a majority of its adherents today, only makes these problems worse. The poor don't care about our self-actualization. They don't care about our mindfulness or about being more present in the moment. They can't. The bohemian consensus that was sold to them by cultural elites who did not adopt it for themselves has created too much disorder within and around them. In short, unchurched spirituality as it is being practiced popularly in the United States today does not give a good hearty damn about the poor. Certainly not about the moral dimension of the crisis of the underclass to which most of his pathologies can be traced. So, many people in our time felt and still feel a need for a deeper, more authentic prayer life. That's why they reach out to some of these things, like yoga, like Zen, like Transcendental Meditation. They express a need for spiritual recollection, a need for some kind of spiritual therapy, to address the the, the recklessness and restlessness. Uh, arising from the driving pace of a technologized world. Some people appear to think that the West created the problem and the East has the answer. Uh, The ecumenical spirit, the tolerance spirit says we have a lot to gain from uh, from sharing with these traditions and to a certain extent we do. Uh, In my world religions class uh, I point out to students the, uh, the many things that I think are very penetrating insights uh, of these various world traditions. Uh, for instance, uh, in Buddhism uh, I, always, I have an outline for every world religious tradition that we cover. Uh, and I always start by asking what's the problem this religion is trying to solve? You know what the problem uh, that uh, Buddhism is trying to solve is? Suffering. What causes suffering? Desire. I think that's a pretty penetrating insight. Uh, And one that uh, Catholics don't need to write off simply because it comes from Buddhists. Uh, Hinduism uh, has the the view that there is no place where you can go uh, and escape the divine. 330 million different deities in Hinduism and counting but the insight there is there's nowhere you can turn and not be implicated somehow in the divine I think it says that someplace in the Psalms Whither can I go from your spirit we don't have to uh, reject that there's plenty of room for conversation in many of these traditions the book of Revelation tells us uh, 21st chapter at the 26th verse If you want to get your Bible out now and look it up, you can follow along. (laughs) Revelation 21, 26 says that the glory of the nations will be brought into the kingdom. The glory of the nations. The nations meaning the people who are not us. They get to bring their glories into the kingdom too. There are things going on in every nation that God can say yes to. Not all of them, but some. Revelation 21, 26 says, they're going to be brought into the kingdom too. We are only obliged to reject in other world faith traditions what is contrary to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now having said that, we are also obliged to know what it is that makes Christian prayer Christian. For any prayer to be Christian, it has to arise from the structure of Christian faith. Now, it would take me another whole series of talks just to begin to unpack an outline of a synopsis of an introduction uh, to the structure of Catholic spirituality. <clears throat> but certain, uh, certain aspects of Catholic spirituality are already evident, and I want to mention just four or five. One uh, is Catholic spirituality and uh, the Bible. It may surprise you to find out that the Bible is at the center of Catholic spirituality. There is a very strong and irreplaceable connection between revelation and prayer. Revelation takes place through words and events, the most decisive of which are recounted in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and all of which converge on Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the Bible is the source of Christian prayer without parallel. You don't have to take my word for it. It's in the Catechism. Ignorance of the Scriptures is ignorance of Christ. That's paragraph 133 in the Catechism prayer book of the Old Testament is the Psalms, which sing of the great work of God, the mighty works of God on behalf of Israel. Uh, the uh, books of history and prophecy in the Old Testament uh, relate God's reckless pursuit, his wild pursuit of his people, uh, a pursuit that's just not explicable apart from God's wild love for his people. The New Testament recognizes that Jesus Christ is the definite and authoritative revelation of God described in the Psalms and the Prophets. The New Testament bears witness that God sends the Spirit, the Spirit which is the relationship between the Father and the Son, into human hearts. And by this we human beings are permitted by divine grace to participate in the very life of God. By reflection on Christ in Holy Scripture, Christ incarnate, crucified and risen, we can behold the mystery of God who is present in us by the Holy Spirit. So, reflection on Christ Nourished and focused by study of the sacred page that protects us from delusion and from corruption. The Bible is at the heart of Catholic spirituality. Another aspect of Catholic spirituality is this uh, uh, Catholic spirit spirituality and conversion. Authentic Christian prayer is based on the great movements of Christian discipleship, specifically, conversion. Conversion in the New Testament is a turning away from the self, turning toward God, a turning away from self in which paradoxically we receive our truest selves. Whoever would find his life uh, will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will find it. Christian prayer, in other words, is not a focus on the self, but a flight from the self. And the more comprehensive the flight, paradoxically, one discovers Uh, himself herself in God so there's no narcissism in Christian prayer because we're always turning away from self uh, toward God on behalf of others and toward others on behalf of God there's Catholic spirituality and evangelism and mission Christians meditate on the way of Christ Christ who said, this is John 4 and verse 34, Christ whose food was, he said, to do the will of the one who sent me. So prayer and mission and evangelism go together. Prayer is always a turning uh, toward the world on behalf of God and turning toward God on behalf of the world. There can be no turning toward the world that does not involve the announcement of God's will for the world and an embodiment of God's Word in works of compassion and mission prayer mission and evangelism go together and finally there's the earthiness of Catholic spirituality Christians in prayer are trying to grasp the saving depths of the work of God Uh, and these are revealed in Catholic spirituality in very earthy ways Other forms of meditation uh, try to set aside all that is worldly and sense perceptible. Uh, The the features of Catholic spirituality that make it so distinctive is it appeals to all the physical senses. Uh, Catholics are sometimes criticized for their smells and bells. Uh, I'm sure you've heard this. Well, uh, this is uh, emblematic, however, of the earthiness Uh, of Christian spirituality of Catholic spirituality Uh, the saving acts of God come to us through earthly things like bread and wine like water and oil like beads and candlelight so to abandon meditation on the saving acts of God through earthly things is to abandon the idea of a triune God in the first place the focus on the Bible focuses our attention on the mighty acts of God especially the mighty acts of salvation in Jesus Christ the gift of the Holy Spirit and it focuses our attention most of all on the people that God is most concerned about blessed are the poor the focus on conversion redeems us from narcissism the focus on conversion is uh, emblematic of a radical unselfing which paradoxically leads to the discovery of our truest selves. Causes us to know uh, that we are not yet our truest selves. There is a conversion that we are not finished with yet. The focus on evangelism and mission in Catholic spirituality means that there are no religious experiences that don't have a moral point. God never gives us any kind of religious experience without also giving us a mission something to do on behalf of others and the focus on the earthiness of Catholic spirituality delivers us from contempt for the world or any of its creatures because it's through these earthly things that the saving acts of God have come to us and come to us every day everywhere Mass is celebrated well, that's about all I have tonight, uh, but I want to leave you with, uh, with this, uh, an insight I got from another book I read recently. Uh, before his death from cancer uh, in March of 2015, uh, Dr. Paul Kalanithi wrote a book about his death uh, called When Breath Becomes Air. Uh, He uh, writes that uh, he had not expected the prospect of facing his mortality to be so dislocating. He said this, I thought back to my younger self, who might have wanted to forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race. Looking into my soul, I found the tools too brittle, the fire too weak, to forge even my own conscience. Lost in a featureless wasteland of my own mortality, and finding no traction in the realms of scientific studies, I began reading literature again. I was searching for a vocabulary with which to make sense of death, to find a way to begin defining myself and inching forward again. And the vocabulary he found was the vocabulary of Christian faith. He found he had to walk away from his ironclad atheism toward God. He said this, To make science the arbiter of metaphysics is to banish not only God from the world, but also love, hate, meaning, to consider a world that is self-evidently not the world we live in. If you believe that science provides no basis for God then you're almost obligated to conclude that science provides no basis for meaning and therefore that life doesn't have any. Science may be the most useful way to organize empirical reproducible data but its power to do so is predicated on its inability to grasp the most central aspects of human life, hope, fear, love, hate, beauty, envy, honor, weakness, striving, suffering, virtue. Dr. Kalanithi returned to the core message of the gospel. That was the vocabulary he needed to cope with death and with life. There are a lot of people out there who are similarly searching for a new vocabulary to make sense of death and life, who are trying to find themselves or find themselves again. The language of Catholic spirituality isn't just good news, it's uh, better news than most non-Catholics know. Better news than most Catholics give it credit for. St. Augustine said, take and read. Discover it yourself again. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you very much.
0: So on the first part of your presentation, how do the other administrators and teachers at your school understand or comprehend the impact of all these educational changes on the poorer members of the community?
1: <sighs> hmm, I hope they're not watching this online. Uh, <laughs> uh, and th- this is going to sound harsh uh, and I don't mean it to because uh, I work with these folks and they're my friends. I'm not sure that they do understand uh, what's going on. Uh, And I'm also not sure that they are free uh, to do other than what they have. Uh, I have a sense, uh, if we're talking about education policy, uh, I have a sense that there's uh, some pressure that's being applied from not just uh, uh, outside the building, but uh, outside the county. Uh, I think some of the uh, pressure to do things differently is coming from Richmond. Um, uh, I I, I don't have any proof of that. It's just a hunch. Uh, So uh, we're all under a lot of pressure. I know our administrators are. Uh, The thing that I admire about them, uh, even when I disagree and disagree very strongly with some of the decisions they're made, when they say that they are trying their hardest to do something uh, right for the, these children, I believe them. Uh, the, uh, their sincerity is complete. Uh, their judgments uh, may not be uh, the best, uh, and mine may not always be the best. Uh, but uh, I believe them when they say they care very deeply about, uh, about the kids. So uh, I don't know if I've answered your question. Uh, does that help well, I
0: think I the first
1: okay yeah
2: we have a number of questions coming from online and uh, a few from some of your students I um, promise
1: them extra credit if they watch <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> the first one is asking uh, and said I was wondering if uh, you have ever read the life of Pi and what your opinion is on pie who believes he can practice multiple religions faithfully at the same time
1: i have read the life of pie it's a very interesting book no i don't think it's possible to uh... practice uh... multiple of religious traditions at the same time uh... for and uh... i don't think uh... i'm uh... uh... i don't have to be a catholic to think that uh... uh from what i know of all the world religious traditions uh... they all demand uh a certain amount, well not a certain amount, they all demand total commitment. Uh, You cannot give yourself, your whole life to Allah and to Jesus Christ at the same time. There's not enough self to go around. Uh, So no, I don't think it can be done. I think that's just a a practical thing. Uh, I do however think that uh, the life of Pi uh, and the view that's expressed therein that you can practice more than one religion simultaneously is emblematic of what a lot of people who are white, well-educated, and well-off would like to think. (laughs) Uh, I think uh, they would love to believe that. Uh, That way they don't have to choose anything. They don't have to really put their feet down inside uh, of one box. Uh, They can wander uh, and then they can say that the wandering is itself the destination. I don't think that's a particularly hopeful way to look at things. So. I hope that answers the question. Uh, But do tell me who that student was so I can make sure the student gets extra credit.
0: (laughs) Uh, You can correct me if I'm mistaken, but it seems to me that some of the poorest countries in the world where most suffering occurs are countries that practice these so-called religions. Uh, Do you think I'm right? And how does that reflect on the religions?
1: I'm not sure I understand the question. Uh, I, I heard you say that uh, some of the, uh, of the poorest countries in the world are also countries that, uh, that uh, practice these uh, other religious traditions, yes? And how does that reflect on the uh, traditions themselves? I don't think it does reflect on the uh, religions themselves, otherwise we'd have to say uh, that uh, our savior, who was um, a, a penniless itinerant rabbi, uh, that somehow reflected badly on him. Uh, 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 I don't think that is a reflection uh, on, uh, their poverty is a reflection necessarily on them. Uh, In my World Religions class, one of the things I talk about is uh, those religious traditions that have encountered some kind of barriers. Sometimes the barrier is ethnic. Uh, For instance, uh, when we talk about Hinduism, we start the year by talking about uh, Hinduism and the various religions of South Asia. Are there many Hindus who look like me? Well, no. Uh, they, thank goodness, right? Uh, <coughs> no, there, there aren't. Uh, there are very few. Uh, so ethnicity is a barrier uh, for Hinduism. It hasn't really been able to break out of that very much. Almost all Hindus look like they're from South Asia. You know? Uh, are there any religions that have done better than that? Well, uh, Islam. Uh, are there many, uh, has Islam done very well in Europe and North America? Well, the answer to that is no. All right, uh, most Muslims uh, uh, have a difficult time appealing to uh, Europeans, Americans, and Canadians and uh, folks in South America. However, the appeal of Islam is wider uh, than Hinduism. Uh, the largest uh, Muslim country in the world is Indonesia. You know, it's uh, no place in the, uh, in the Middle East. To my knowledge, uh, there's really only one religious tradition that has really strong representation across uh, geographical boundaries and across ethnic boundaries, and that's Christianity. Uh, It has the most uh, appeal across uh, those uh, boundaries. So one of the things I think you can look at when you're comparing one religious tradition to another is what kind of boundaries, what kind of limitations it's running into, and what do those limitations tell you? I don't think poverty is one of them. Uh, but I think geography and ethnicity is.
2: We have another question coming in online from Terry in Pittsburgh asking, uh, I have heard that yoga and Tai Chi even as exercise are spiritually risky to Catholics. What's your view on this?
1: Well, uh, Tai Chi started as a martial art uh, and they took Tai Chi and slowed it down. Uh, And that's, uh, no kidding, that's what happened. They slowed it down and that's what it is uh, today. Uh, And it's really kind of cool to watch. Uh, Maybe some of you have seen it. Is it risky for Catholics? I'm reminded of something the Apostle Paul said. Uh, uh, He uh, was uh, talking about uh, food offered to idols uh, in some of his letters. Uh, is, uh, Is food offered to idols... Uh, A bad thing. And he said, Well, on the one hand, the idols don't exist. So, can you eat food uh, offered to these idols uh, without any danger to your soul? Answer is yes, they don't exist. However, however, you may be talking to a Christian brother or sister who is a recent convert. Uh, from one of these cults. And they see you eating uh, this food that was offered to idols, and this is a scandal to them. So the Apostle Paul said, in compassion for them, stay away from it, because it may be misleading to them, it might be dangerous to their faith. If you're a strong Catholic, and you want to go out in the park and do Tai Chi, uh, and then go home and pray your rosary, uh, is anything bad going to happen to you? I doubt it. I doubt it. However, one of the things that we Christians uh, in general, we Catholics in particular, are always called to be alert to uh, is the people around us. Are the people around us experienced disciples or are they inexperienced disciples? Are they likely to misunderstand the kinds of things that we're doing? Uh, And would that uh, perhaps be a danger to their faith? If so, don't do it. If so, don't do it. I think that's good advice uh, when it comes to things like Tai Chi, when it comes to things like going to the yoga store at the mall. Um, I don't go to them because I would look terrible in yoga pants. Uh, so. Yes? Hey, doc- Dr. Campbell, thank you for your talk. Um, my name is John Murphy. Um, I, was, uh, I made this uh, uh, meeting because I actually missed a yoga class. So... <laughs> Uh, I just wanted to ask you, how does that, doing yoga, hurt the poor and the uh, lower class? I understand how um, preaching one set of values and then acting on another set of values could be sort of misleading to them, but I'm wondering, does this sort of lead them to believe that they can find, you know, spiritual answers through yoga? Is that the aspect of it that's misleading or hurtful to the lower class? yes uh, in a word uh, but let me uh, uh... let me elaborate just a little bit uh... you going to yoga class uh... is that necessarily going to have uh, a negative impact on your poor neighbor well maybe not necessarily however uh... the uh... the notion that uh... the world view that says uh... that uh, spirituality can be whatever you want it to be that meaning can be whatever you want it to be. The truth can be whatever you want it to be. That's the thing that's incredibly damaging to the poor. Anything we do that encourages them to think of that is stuff that we need to avoid. Okay? Anything that encourages that in others is stuff that we need to avoid. The way the yoga classes are taught, uh, my niece uh, uh, took a course to, to open up a yoga studio. Now, she's a golf coach now uh, at Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And uh, she uses some of the uh, insights that she learned from uh, the courses that she took to uh, uh, open a yoga studio. She uses them in, uh, in coaching golf. <clears throat> uh, I'm with Mark Twain and believe that... Uh, that golf is a lovely walk ruined by a little white ball. <clears throat> uh, but uh, the, uh, the way that yoga is practiced in a lot of places really doesn't, as a practical matter, involve religion at all. And I do know that many people find that it to be uh, helpful because they've got a bad back, they've got bad joints, whatever. Uh, is doing these things uh, as a matter of personal fitness or personal wellness necessarily something going to hurt the poor? I, I, I don't know what to say because I don't know the particulars of the context of those people. I don't know your context. You know? I work in a public school. Uh, I'm surrounded by impressionable uh, children every single day. Uh, I find myself having to be extremely careful about the things that I say, the things that I do because I know uh, that not only can they, they will draw the wrong conclusion because they simply don't have enough experience not to, you know? We all have to examine the context that we inhabit uh, and ask, "What what is this context telling me about the way that I must be a disciple? Uh, if we're asking that uh, question seriously, uh, if we're asking that faithfully, if we're asking that often, uh, I think we're doing the Lord's work. Uh, but the key—the key has to be, in my judgment, what I'm doing. Is it going to be uh, a uh, something that damages the poor? Is it going to be something that damages the weak? If so don't do it it's the wrong thing to do does that help okay. Um,
2: we have another question coming in from online uh, from Hugh in Stafford was Thomas Merton influenced in such a way that one should be careful of his writings
1: some of his later writings yes uh, his earlier writings not so much uh, part of my dissertation uh, my dissertation uh, I uh, examined the writings of Thomas Merton and um, a uh, uh, bishop from the Church of South India, Leslie uh as, uh as Thomas Merton drew closer to uh, Buddhism, uh, mm-hmm. there were some people uh, I've read, I don't know if I believe them, uh, but they think that if Thomas Merton had lived and hadn't died tragically in 1968, uh, he might have become a Buddhist. Uh, that might be a bit of a reach. Uh, You know, for a Trappist monk to uh, to jump ship and become a Buddhist, I don't know. Uh, But uh, there is a much more pronounced influence of uh, of uh, Buddhism in his later writings. Uh, His earlier writings, uh, I don't think there's uh, uh, any worry about that at all. Uh, So,
2: for my own curiosity, was Seven Story Mountain was that was his first? Was his first? Okay, first. Um, and we're going to end with this last question coming in from another one of your students, asking as a teach as the teacher of world of a world religion class, what makes you choose Catholic over other religions?
0: <laughs>
1: oh. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, uh, she does. Um, <clears throat> This is a question I get asked a lot. Uh, I was a Presbyterian preacher for 25 years uh, before I became a Catholic. And people want to hear all the time what made me change my mind, uh, what made me uh, stop being a Protestant and start being a Catholic. Uh, There's a long version, there's a short version, and there's the bullet points. I think you have time for the bullet points. Uh, The bullet points are these. Uh, One, Uh, I had gotten to a point in my discipleship uh, that I needed resources for growth that were simply not available to me as a Protestant uh, but that were available to me through the sacraments of the Catholic Church, uh, particularly uh, the Eucharist uh, and the Sacrament of Reconciliation. Uh, I don't know how many times I heard uh, uh, Presbyterian colleagues say, and they would always say this off the record, They wished the sacramental uh, confession was something that was available in the Presbyterian Church because it made so much sense. It does. It does. So these particular resources were things I thought that uh, I believed that uh, I needed to uh, continue growing uh, as a disciple. I'll tell you a funny little story Uh, because my wife is here. um, This is my wife, Ellen. Um, The... um, when I turned 50, uh, um, my wife came to me and said, Now, uh, I'm about to uh, tell you something, and you're not allowed to say no. <clears throat> well, that's not specific enough. That's almost everything. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> But when I turned 50, uh, uh, when I was a Presbyterian minister, every year I would go on a... Uh, a a retreat with a bunch of other Presbyterian ministers to the Monastery of the Holy Spirit in Conyers, Georgia. Uh, and we would do everything with the monks there. We, would, uh, uh, we didn't eat with them, but we worked with them, we studied with them, uh, we uh, talked with them all day long, uh, we went to Mass with them, uh, we had a dispensation so that we could actually receive uh, the Eucharist then. Yeah. Uh, the bishop said, okay. Uh, so we were, uh, uh, we were within the rules. Anyway, uh, I loved going on that retreat. I looked forward to it every year. But when I became a teacher, uh, it was always the same, uh, same time every year. Uh, it was two weeks after Easter. Well, that usually puts you sometime in late April, early May. Uh, and April and May are terrible months for teachers. Uh, AP testing, SOL testing, it's a, it's a nightmare. Anyway, when I turned 50, uh, uh, my wife, who loves me and who I love with all my heart, uh, gave me a surprise, she wanted to send me back to the monastery for this retreat. She called up my principal. Can you do without him for a week? Well, he's got enough leave time. Uh, I would love to have been a bug on the wall for this conversation. Uh, What what does he want to do? I want to send him to a monastery. (laughs) (laughs) Principal came out to my room. Everything okay? (laughs) Um, and I loved it. Uh, I got to see some folks, uh, some some Presbyterian ministers I hadn't seen for a while. I got to see some of the monks that I'd gotten close to I hadn't seen in a while. And when I came back from that trip, uh, uh, I said, you know, she she picked me up at the airport and said, so uh, how was it? I said, well, uh, I think I need to make an appointment with Father Gould, uh, and uh, I need to be a Catholic now. <laughs> she kept the car on the road. That was a, that, that was, <laughs> Uh, and I'm sure she thought for a while I'd lost my mind. Uh, and uh, she, uh, we were both Presbyterians at the time. Uh, uh, my wife uh, is a Catholic now, too. Um, I need you to know uh, that anybody who knows my wife uh, will tell you that if I had tried to kind of twist her arm into this, that would not have gone well for me. Uh, so the, the Holy Spirit was working on her, too. Uh, and she has her own journey, she can tell you about, but um, the uh, I decided when I turned fifty that i couldn 't live without those uh, th- those resources of grace anymore. Uh, one of the other things uh, that uh, the older that i 've gotten uh, i 'm uh, just about sixty now, and uh, the older I get, the more uh, certain moral issues in our time uh, bother me. one of them is abortion uh, and I I got so frustrated uh, with the Presbyterian Church because of of its endless waffling on that issue, and I just couldn't take it anymore. Uh, And one of the things that even a lot of uh, of opponents of Catholicism actually admire about us Catholics is that Catholics have never waffled on this, not even one time. Uh, So... Those are the two biggest reasons why I decided to stop uh, being a Presbyterian and start being a Catholic. Uh, I really felt that uh, my, uh, my moral growth and in integrity and my spiritual growth and in integrity uh, required it.
2: Thank you very much, Dr. Campbell. All
0: right. All, right. All right. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture.